The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in. Excited for today's episode. Dave Rubin came on the show. So honored he came on. Talk show host, comedian, TV personality, and author. He's the host of The Rubin Report, which I highly recommend. It's a talk show about big ideas and free speech. It's known for its politically incorrect and open approach to discussing complex issues and current events. I think he's one of the best ones out there that is ready, willing, and able to tackle uh, opposing ideas and uh, you know, bring people on that don't agree with him. And just have this open, honest discussion, and that's and, and I and I dig that, and, and it's something that I would certainly, as you heard me talk about in a couple episodes ago, I'm feel a drawn toward, feel a, a pull towards to do on this show as well. That show, Ruben Report, has garnered a huge fan base from across the world, and again, it's about because of these honest conversations about important topics in a thoughtful and candid manner. And as be honest, you just don't really see that much of anywhere. And uh, hopefully we can pivot Dose of Leadership in that direction as well. His show is a top political YouTube channel and a leading political podcast on iTunes. In addition to that Ruben report, I said he was a stand-up comedian. That's where he started. And he still performs around the country, highlighting kind of the weirdness around our new polarized political landscape. And uh, he recently accompanied Dr. Jordan Peterson, which I'm a huge fan of as well, on an international speaking tour. And he's got a book out there. I read it in one sitting. I highly recommend this. Don't Burn This Book. It was released in April of this year. And uh, it's a, a book that that redefines what a classical liberal is. I think a lot of times, and, and he is, he considers himself a classical liberal, but you wouldn't know it if you hear him talk. The big takeaways from this, just an honest, open conversation about where we are in the state of this world. Uh, I think it's important to us as leaders to try to understand how to deal effectively, communicate effectively with the challenges that we're facing. In fact, one of the questions, a lot of this stems from a question I received from a listener, and I have I honestly have trouble answering. And I'm going to answer it in an upcoming Q&A session. But the question was uh, that I really struggled with was um, the question is, I quote, how can a leader who may or may not have experienced or who may not have ex- ever experienced discrimination against his or herself ensure that his or her own biases do not discriminate against subordinates. I get that. That's a touching one. It's a tough one. Well, having conversations with guys like like Dave Rubin and addressing that here, I'm committed to tackling that. And so this just just take this conversation for what it is, an open and honest conversation about the state of the world, where we're at, and how as we as leaders can can navigate through it. So I hope you enjoy it. And I appreciate you tuning in. A uh, quick plug for my stuff. If you could, subscribe, rate, and view to the show if you're finding some value. Tell somebody about this show. That's the other call to action. 
uh, and leave a, a review on iTunes if you can, or, or your favorite podcast uh, application. It does so much for that word of mouth and for the visibility and algorithm to keep this show front and center, and it continues to be in the top 20 of iTunes business podcast under the management category. And I couldn't be there without your support. And uh, this show will continue to grow, and it's because of you. And for that, I'm appreciative. And if you need somebody to speak, teach, and coach about leadership, or you're looking for my online leadership course, go to doseofleadership.com and uh, check out all the services there and reach out to me on the contact page or directly at richard at doseofleadership.com. All right, again, thank you so much for your support, and let's get on with this great conversation with Dave Rubin, host of The Rubin Report, here on Dose of Leadership. Dave, what a thrill and an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. It's good to be with you. Let's test my leadership skills, see what happens here. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I was <laughs> telling you a little bit in the pre-recording that, you know, when I found you, when I found Peterson, particularly you two, um, I've been really frustrated over the last, I don't know, probably five years, but particularly this last year, as everything's kind of gone upside down, I felt kind of... Um, and I even I don't know, like politics all that much, but I felt politically lost. I feel like I didn't have a home. And so I wanted to thank you first and foremost for the work that you do and great job on your book. I finished it, read it in one night. So don't burn this book. It was awesome. So thank you for, for the work that you do. Well, thank you for the kind compliments. You're obviously buttering me up before we get into the, <laughs> right. the tough stuff. But, uh, you know, it's, it's an odd thing for me because I, I don't consider myself uh, particularly controversial. I don't consider no. myself someone that courts, uh, you know, anger or hostility or, or even fame in, in a weird way. I'm just saying what I think. I talk to people that I think are interesting. And then, and then on that journey, I've been honest about how I've changed certain beliefs or how I've refined certain things or how I think differently or how those, all of, all of that stuff, how that has just incorporated into my life and now uh, running several businesses and having employees and all of those things. And, you know, through doing all that, I think something good has sort of magically appeared. And the fact that, you know, people say what you just said to me pretty often that, you know, I help them, maybe I introduced them to Jordan and then through Jordan, right. they were able to fix something in their life or, or not even just about Jordan and, and self-help specifically, maybe their own political evolution, maybe something about belief or lack of belief or philosophy. If I've had anything to do with anyone's ability to you know, pilfer a little more happiness or find a little more purpose in the world. That's, that's pretty freaking spectacular. Well, I think it's a, it, because it's rooted in a couple of things. It's rooted in authenticity, which I think is lacking in so many uh, bastions or so many corners of, of our world. Right. And so, and I think that's something I've definitely learned from doing this show. And I, I think any modicum of success that I've had on this show and from the feedback that I've got from guests is, and where I saw the turning point was I just need to be authentic and transparent. I'm not trying to be an interviewer. I'm not trying to be something that I'm not. And I see that in you and even reading in your book and knowing a little about your history. And it wasn't that long ago, to be quite honest. And, you know, and I love your story where you had the conversation with Larry Elder and where you had the kind of the courage and the tenacity to say, you know what? I kind of got beat up here. Let's just play it as it is. I think even your producer at the time, whoever it was, said, hey, well, we'll cut that out. Don't worry. Yeah. And you said, no, nah, let's just leave it in. And and you, that was kind of a turning point for you, wasn't it? I mean, and it wasn't that long ago, which I think- No, it's was, funny. I, well, I, I describe it as, as my best and worst career moment at the exact same time. You know, it was my worst for obvious reasons, right? I came to a fight, uh, in this case, an intellectual fight over systemic racism. 
and I wasn't armed with facts. So when I said sort of the default setting thing, the idea, oh, well, systemic racism exists, meaning it's built into the system. There are laws about it, about there are racist laws in the system, the American system itself. I just said it as if, oh, by the fact that I'm saying it, it must inherently be true. Larry then just, as I say in the book, he beat me senseless with facts, fact after fact after fact. And I guess the moment that for a lot of people was special there is that you can sort of see me take the hit. I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't attack him. I didn't personally attack him. I didn't end the interview or any of that stuff. I just kind of sat there with it. And then when the interview closed, as you said, I went into the control room and, and several producers were in there at the time. It was before we were completely independent and everybody said, Dave, don't worry about it. We're going to cut that. And I really didn't have to think about it. I was just like, guys, you know what? If, if I'm doing anything worthwhile, if this has any meaning whatsoever, we have to leave it. And I know I'm not going to look great, but we have to leave it. And, you know, the next couple of days as the clips started going around and you know how YouTube works, Larry Elder <laughs> destroys capital right. letters, Dave right. Rubin, you know, conservative crushes libtard, you know, the, the rest <laughs> of that stuff. Well, in the initial hit of that, I was like, oh, man, this stinks. Like nobody wants to be on the receiving end of that. But what I realized really after maybe three days was that the commenters were suddenly going, holy cow, Dave, Dave sat there. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Dave sat there and, and, and took it. And then they started watching me change over the next couple of months, learning more about it, having, having those conversations, going further with it, you know, eventually getting to talk to people like Thomas Sowell, who was a mentor mm-hmm. of, of uh, Larry Elder's. And I think that sort of honest approach is very attractive to people. It's not rocket science. It's, no. just, it's just being who you are, being humble in the moment and seeing what happens. And I think realizing, too, that we've lost the art of um, – I think for me, you know, having the principles that were kind of ingrained in me from the beginning that were a little more traditional, I just kind of assumed that, hey, you know, I'll fight to the death to defend – your beliefs, even though I, I vehemently disagree with them, I just kind of assumed that was still there. Now I have four daughters, and two of them are one's twenty three, one's twenty one, and I and I said this on a couple podcasts ago. It's become really personal for me because I, I in a sense, lost in one sense one of my daughters, almost a strange, essentially strange from us because of this kind of woke culture. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and I see. And and that to me was maybe the splat moment. I think up prior to that, I was kind of like, oh, well, it's just that, you know, uh, most people see things like I see. And when I say seeing things like I see, I just kind of assume I can sit down and have a conversation with you and degree and disagree and then go have a beer with you later. That is very rare, it seems like, these days. Well, that that's what's so incredibly insidious and dangerous about the woke ideology that what you describe there of agree to disagree have a beer with a friend who you argue with about some stuff i mean those my best friends to this day uh, it's it's funny actually my my two best friends who i describe in the book uh john and ari um they john i met when we were four years old i literally Mm -hmm. remember meeting him the first day of kindergarten i remember being introduced to him and we've been best buddies for now 40 years and ari moved to town when we were in third grade and we are still super close, even though John lives in Jersey, I'm in LA, Ari's in, in Dallas, but we don't agree on everything, right, obviously. Exactly. And, for, and for roughly 40 years, whether we were playing sports, playing video games, now doing it over text, we're arguing about everything all the <laughs> right. time, all the time. And that, what, a, what a beautiful thing that is. I you know, know like right. that, that is what 
that's what being human actually is about. Because being human, the only way you can map your reality and really figure out what you believe is, is, to, is to map it against somebody else's. So you, you feel and think and know certain things and someone else feels and thinks and knows certain things. Then you get to have that dance. Now, if what happens is you, your ideas are so tenuous um, that you can't map them against anybody else because they're going to just blow up your world. It's actually on you. You're the one with the problem. So, so when you describe that with your, with your daughter, I'm really sorry to hear it. And I, I can't tell you how many of those stories I've heard. And by the way, you read the book. I mean, I've had plenty of those people that were super close to me, invited yeah. to my wedding, turn on me, Dave, you're a racist, you're a bigot, all of these things. And, and you, know, you ask them, well, what did I say that was racist and bigot? And, and they bigoted and they can't even figure it out, mm-hmm. but it's just somehow this amorphous thing that they can apply to you. And, and that's why... You know, four or five years ago, when I started saying, you know, guys, this woke culture thing is dangerous. I, I, I was saying identity politics is the most dangerous force in America. That's what I was saying about four years ago. And people said, no, it's just on college campuses. Yeah. It's a bunch of privileged kids, blah, blah, blah. They'll get to the real world and the real world will suck them in. And, and you know, then they'll, they'll give up that stuff. And I just didn't believe that. And now what we've seen is it has leaked into everything. And not only not only every system and every institution, but it is leaked into your home. Yeah. And and that you know we're we're in the process of having kids. Uh, so I'm I'm 44. I'll, I'll finally be having my first. And one of the things that I do worry about in the in the future, and I'll, I'll be an old timer at that point. But when when my son or daughter comes up to me in college and says, you know, suddenly whatever the woke thing is of the day. And it's so counter to everything I've taught them and how, how to deal with that. So I have, I have great empathy for what you're going through. And, and just know there are, there are probably millions of people in America going through some version of what you just described. Well, I agree. And I think the more that I've become self-aware and attuned to it, a lot of times, you know, I, I would even say, and it was funny that you, you mentioned that when I was kind of revisiting some of your stuff. Uh, I, I think last week I was listening to your one of your appearances on Rogan. I think it was 2018. And it's funny how it's only, I think it was two years ago this June. I think it was 2018 June you were on. And it's even funny listening to Rogan then, just two years ago, and then Rogan now. And how Rogan was kind of just saying the same thing that you just said about, well, you know, it's just, you know, it's a, a handful of folks. It's just on the campuses. And you were kind of saying, no, I think it's it's more insidious than that. And he's kind of come around even in two years. It's just amazing how fast in two years has changed. Of course, 2020 amplified everything so quickly. You know, I think that yeah. it's brought everything to the surface. But my point is, is that as I become more self-aware and in tune and the volume's been turned up on it, it is a little shocking to see how, how infectious or how widespread it is. You said in that interview in 2018 that, and of course, you were in the middle of your tour with Peterson at the time, you you had this really optimistic tone about there was this awakening. I remember you saying that and you felt real. And of course being with around Peterson, I can imagine it's just got to be a tremendous high and an intellectual, you know, juggernaut of just, you know, oh, getting yeah. your brain oh, yeah. infused. So you felt really positive. So I'm going to ask you that same question. Do you, do you think there's still an awakening? I kind of feel like there is, but I, yeah. want, I wanted to see what you think about that. So, so first, you know, being on tour with Jordan, I, the, the year that we did that, and it was about a hundred something shows and we were in about 20 countries and to see these thousands of people, 
every night who were getting their lives together, mm -hmm. mending relationships, you know, getting better jobs, getting off drugs, whatever the thing is. I saw so much of it firsthand and shook so many of those people's hands and heard so many of their stories, whether we were in the hotel or the airport or on the street. Like it was just this endless for a year. In, in a certain way, it feels like a dream to me. Like I think mm -hmm. back on that year and I'm like, did that really happen? Because because it, it was so incredible. Right. And my life changed so many ways. Mm -hmm. I got the book deal while we were there. Obviously, my profile rose. So all the things that I've been able to accomplish were so deeply linked to that. So the whole thing to me is like, what, what an, a spectacular experience I was able to have. As for the awakening part, I do feel it. I really do. And I, and it, but it's harder to feel right now than it was then. Yeah. Because, because then I think, you know, bef this is before COVID, as you said, this is about two years ago. This is before all this crazy racial stuff we're dealing with right now. At that point, there was, I could feel this underbelly of the internet thing. And I think in that interview, I also referenced right at the beginning that I was on Rogan. Um, I believe the second time was the day before the election. It was yeah. the day before mm -hmm. the election. Right. So it was the day before the Trump election. And I was going, you know, everybody's saying Hillary's going to win. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I think it's 50, 50. It's a coin toss. And the reason that I felt that was because I had been paying attention to what was going on online. If you only had paid attention to CNN, if you had only read the New York times or paid attention to mainstream, well, of course you were going to say Hillary's going to win in a landslide. That's it. But instead of just mocking all of the Trump people, what I did was I talked to Mike Cernovich. I talked to Scott Adams, a couple other people that were Trump supporters, Milo, a couple other people. That doesn't mean all those people are perfect. It doesn't mean they're all Nostradamus or clairvoyant. But I, I treated them with respect because I thought there's something going on here, right? Mm -hmm. So I think because I had had that feeling in 2016 of, you know, there's something going on beneath the surface. In 2018, when I was saying, oh, there is this awakening, I think, again, it was because I've been able to read the temperature of what's happening online rather than what's happening in mainstream. And I think now in 2020, so we've had 2016, 2018, 2020, you know, three two-year breaks of these things. I think what's happening now is online and the real world or online and the mainstream They've, you know, it's been like online growing, mainstream collapsing. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways, the Trump election was sort of the, uh, the, the online world sort of overtaking the mainstream world. And now it's sort of they're in this like dance of creation and destruction constantly. And, you know, it's like my show on any given night or, or certainly Rogan's show on any given day gets way more views than what's going on on CNN. Yeah, we great know point. this. Great we point. know this is a fact. So the, the tables have turned in an odd way. Um, and what I feel is happening right now is the media is telling us we're all racist. The media is telling us we sort of have to accept that, that um, identity politics and big government and socialism and Marxism that, and, and, and the, the, the policies of Black Lives Matter, that these are all things that are inevitable. And I don't think that's what the average person thinks. I think the average person who is watching this stuff happen, the average American is going, you know, this is a little crazy now. Maybe they were tolerating it. You know, maybe they mm -hmm. were kind of putting up with it or they weren't sure what it was. But when you watch Portland burn, which as we're mm -hmm. talking right now, Portland is on fire. When you watch them put a semi-autonomous zone in Seattle, when you watch New York City have the highest murder rates in 30 years, Chicago not, I think nine people were shot in Chicago yesterday and right. every weekend it's dozens of other people. When you watch this happen across every progressive city, if you're a person that's thinking, well, first off, you're going, all right, that, that can't be the answer. Violence and, and mayhem can't be the answer. 
And if the progressives who run all of these cities, every single one of these cities, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, New York, LA, San Francisco, if they won't fix their cities, well, if the choice is between anarchy and Trump, I think the average person is going to go, listen, Trump may be a bit of a blowhard. I don't like what he does on Twitter. His hair is nuts. He's orange. But I will choose that. And and that's why what I firmly believe and why I'm hopeful still is that the future of American politics, and I think the future of the West, is a center-right future. And there's evidence of that, by the way. You know, in the UK elections, just in the last, uh, what, eight months, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the left, which is our equivalent of the socialist left Mm -hmm. we have here, they got destroyed, Yeah, absolutely destroyed. In the Australian election, uh, they voted right. In the Israeli election, which they've had like 10 elections in the last five years or something, something crazy, they went more right. So I think what's happening is most Western countries are saying there's a really bad set of collectivist, Marxist, communist ideas. And the future is not, is not far right xenophobia. It's not, it's not some bigoted evil monster. It's a center right sort of populist libertarian view of the world. That, that's what I firmly believe. I, I hope I'm right. And, you know, I suppose we'll find out on November 4th. Yeah, I hope you're right, too. I guess um, – and one thing I appreciated about you was kind of re-educating me again. And I, you mentioned a good friend. I got a friend that I've known. We were born on the same day, grew up three houses apart. And um, he's what I would call a classical liberal. And I didn't, I didn't really understand that term until I, I started following you and you helped me re-educate me what a classical and I would consider myself a classical liberal I think on the surface my kids would call me a conservative but I think that when I look at anything I'm more like you I'm almost perfectly aligned with you on everything on all the topics that you mentioned in don't burn this book the way I view gun control the way I view abortion the way I view systemic racism all of that aligns perfectly with what you say and I would and and you define yourself as a classical liberal I would say I am that too now based on what it is but someone who doesn't pay attention you hear the yeah. word liberal you know it's a, liberalism has been associated with leftism now so it, just for the sake of my audience and for other guys yeah. like me define classical liberalism to me yeah so it's a great question and i've spent as i'm sure you know i've spent a lot of my life over the last couple of years trying to clean this up because the word liberalism has been so butchered at this point that I don't know that I can actually save the word liberalism. And you know, one of the things mm-hmm. that I say often now is that defending my liberal beliefs is becoming a conservative position. So for people that are really, that are not, you know, uh, poly, sci, you know, wonks, <laughs> right. a classical liberal, you basically believe in two things. You believe in individual rights, meaning that anyone that's a legal citizen of the country, in this case, the United States, uh, regardless of your sex, your gender, your, your ethnicity, your national origin, as long as you're a citizen, you have the exact same rights as everybody else. Equal rights under the law, individual rights. That's what we have in the United States. That's what the Constitution set up. Now, we didn't always practice that properly, of course, because we had slavery, women couldn't vote, uh, gay people couldn't get married, but the arc of justice has always bent in the right direction. So you have to believe that. And then really, it's about laissez-faire economics, that you believe that the market and maximum freedom for competition is the best way for human flourishing. And then, you know, logic and reason and things like that sort of sit underneath all of that, which are, you know, I don't mean to diminish them. They're important things. Um, But individual rights and getting the government out of the way enough. But, and this because a lot of people will say, well, that sounds very libertarian. Really, the only tangible difference is that it's hard to put what libertarianism is truly in a box Mm -hmm. because, you know, 
once you go down that road, which intellectually I love, I love the ideas of the ANCAP people and the, and the real far libertarians who want to disassemble the state altogether and really see what people could do individually. But I think I would describe a classical liberal as a realistic libertarian, basically. And then to go one step further, when, when your friends say, oh, you know, you've, you've espoused all these beliefs, you're basically a conservative. I don't mind at this point. If someone wants to call me, what I would say is I'm a, I'm a future conservative or, or a modern conservative, something like that. Um, because, yeah, most of the things. Now, the one, if, if you're with me on abortion and I make a begrudging pro-choice argument in my book, mm -hmm. Generally speaking, the one that that sort of sets the dividing line between the classical liberals and, and the conservatives is abortion. That abortion ha is like the third rail one for conservatives. That being said, you know, I had Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani on my show a couple of weeks ago. Let's not forget that only uh, what is it about 10 years ago? Um, he was the leading candidate at one point to be Republican nominee for president. And he's pro-choice. Right. OK, this is a New Yorker pro-choice. So there is room on the, on the conservative side for some level of debate. I'm not trying to convince my conservative friends uh, to be pro-choice, and I even say that in the book, but I want them to carve out a little room in the conservative side of things so that people like us are, are, have, have a home there. And by the way, I see them doing that. You know, you can even look at the gay rights one. It's like, you know, the people that were, were um, the most vehemently anti-gay let's say 10 years ago, anti-gay anti marriage. Uh, let, you know, talk about Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, things like that. Those are not voices that, that really matter in, in the yeah, Republican right. Party anymore. Right. Now, I'm not saying those people should be banished or anything else, but what I'm saying is something happened on the right where people did evolve in an interesting, open, pluralistic way. We should embrace that. And at the same time, we're watching the left just purge people, and, and that just is what it is. Well, and that's what drives me so crazy about the, the vehement left argument is, to your point, I think that whenever anybody makes an argument around individual rights, it's hard to, to disagree with it. And so my point is, if you take the gay rights example, the gay marriage example, it's hard to uh, be against somebody that comes at it with the, the avenue or vein of, well, look, I mean, you have these rights. Why can't we have the same, right? When you're talking about whatever, marriage and, and respect and everything else, it's hard. To, you don't really have a leg to stand on because that goes towards because it's based in principles, right? Principles that have made the nation great and unique. And and that's what makes the, that's what's so powerful and unique about this country. And to your point, I mean, that's what's so unique about what was laid down in the Declaration and the Constitution because, yeah, we weren't perfect, but it's a nation when we come together and we talk and we're like, yeah, you know, it's the same thing with slavery, right? Hey, you got a document here that says all men should be, and I just want the same that you want. And it's hard to disagree with that. And the problem and, is- And by the way, by the way, it's an aspirational. It's they, aspirational, yeah. It, they, meaning the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, these are aspirational documents. Mm -hmm. So all men are created equal. This is a beautiful, what a beautiful thing to say in founding documents. All men are created equal. Yet at the same time, we have to acknowledge that the very people who wrote that own slaves. Now that is true. Right. That is true and it's an important thing to acknowledge it. Does it mean that the, totali the totality of their work 
should be undermined. They created this incredible free country that, by the way, even all of the people who relentlessly rail on how horrible America is and how much they want to destroy it. I mean, Ilhan Omar, AOC, and the rest of them, they don't leave. I mean, if, if, if America was any of the things that these people purported it to believe, they would leave. Trump's not keeping anybody here. You're welcome to leave. As a matter of fact, still more and more people want to come. Mm-hmm. So, so the proof is in the pudding, actually. And it doesn't mean we're all perfect at all times. But this, this constant quest to destroy the future in the name of some utopia that you can never get to. Right. I mean, this, this is the, the fundamental issue here, I think, more than anything else, is that progressives somehow believe that they and they alone can create a perfect future if they and they alone only had the power to do it. That's a very flawed view of what humans can do, can accomplish. I believe humans can do incredible mind-blowing things, but we can't create a perfect system because we are not perfect. So the best I think humans can do is create a set of principles that will that will limit power enough so that you can live however you want to live. And that's exactly what we got with the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Well, and that's, it goes back to my original question about, you know, if, if you think there's an awakening, there is. I mean, the po- and I guess I'm asking how positive are you about it? I I, I guess I'm positive in the sense because if you don't have principles to stand on, it will eventually eat itself. And so a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. that we see will eventually destroy itself. And if the principles are there, I guess what I'm worried about is like how much pain, how much can yes. be lost uh, unnecessarily. And so what can we do as individuals, leaders to, to stand up to it? Obviously, standing by these principles, um, not being afraid, standing up. A lot of you talk about in your book, you know, you know. You know, don't back down. You know, don't apologize for what you what you believe because it's rooted in principles, right? And I think that's the key. And, and so I feel optimistic about that. However, uh, I'm not a Trump fan. I haven't been. Uh, from a leadership perspective, I just think he's a disaster. However, he is a stopgap against some of this. Le- I mean, he's he is what he is. He's the only stopgap that I have, or it seems like, to stop some of this lunacy. However, if he wins, is what we're talking about here, this awakening that you feel like is still there, is it easier if he wins or is it easier if Biden wins? Oh, it's way easier if Trump wins. Way, 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 way easier. So first, let me say this, that I I understand your your feelings about Trump. You know, I've... I, I didn't vote for Trump. I voted for Gary Johnson. And, you know, I was here in California, so I had the luxury of voting third party without it having too much meaning. Um, you know, I've come around on Trump in a lot of ways, partly because of what you just said there. Look, do we do, personality wise and all, all of the stuff that everyone has with Trump, it, that is what it is. But I think you hit the nail on the head. He's the stopgap for this thing. You know, I, I don't know the meaning of life. I don't know how everyone ends up in the position they're in. And it does seem particularly odd that this, you know, hair plugged orange man (laughs) seems to be seems to be the last uh, the last line before the barbarians take over. Right. They're at the gate. And Trump is the guy right now that is trying to stop them. And, And let's put it this way. Do you think. John McCain could have stood up to this. Do you think no. Mitt Romney could have stood up to this? No, it's Do you a think great John point. Kasich or any other, no. you know, Mitt Romney, all of them, none of them could have stood up to it. And, and there is a weird 
I don't know how it is. It, it's almost like a storybook thing. It took this sort of deeply corrupt New York City businessman to fight the deeply corrupt Washington deep state. That That's sort of where I think we're at. And I don't think Trump is a racist. I don't think he's a homophobe. Uh, it doesn't mean I think he's perfect, obviously. But what I think can happen, and this will link to what you said a moment ago about how much destruction does this all cause before it burns out, because it will burn out. What I think has to happen here, the only way I can see us getting out of this, is Trump has to win re-election. Because if he doesn't win re-election, then, then the left will be emboldened. They, they will destroy Biden. Biden. Biden is too old and confused. Yeah. He will be eaten alive by the movement. And then congratulations, the, the socialists will be here. That I mean, I just see that as the obvious play. So what you need to happen, if, if you love America, you want this experiment to continue at any level, I think you need Trump to win. And then... Look, first off, it will be violent because they they're, look, they're being violent now. And then they will they didn't accept the results of the election and they tried impeachment. They will pull out every awful thing you can possibly imagine. But what I think will happen is that the people who support Trump and the silent majority who love America will start feeling emboldened and they will start standing up against this nonsense in their own communities, in their own families and everything else. And then and then after a long four years and it's going to be a long four years. I think what happens is Trump, meaning the destroyer, the guy who had to come in to break the thing, because we all knew something was wrong with the machinery, the guy who came in and broke it, he will then lead to a really rich, diverse crop of Republicans. So there'll be a Dan Crenshaw and a Nikki Haley and mm -hmm. maybe a Candace Owens and a Tim Scott and who knows else who else comes on the scene. But you will get a truly, I mean, diverse of ideas and a diverse of ethnicities and sexualities and skin colors and all of those things. I think that probably, if you're looking for the star in the distance, as Jordan would say, that's probably the star. But I think we're not there yet. We need no. Trump to get us to that. And I, you know, it sounds a little fairy tale, I suppose, but I, I the other way, if if Biden wins. Man, I, this experiment really could be up. Yeah, I I hate to think of it that way because you get labeled a kook, you know. But, yeah. I, <laughs> but we're all conspiracy theorists <laughs> these days, you know. Well, but I think from an individual level, I mean, I think too the more that I've even over the last four years, and the more that I've seen that, and again, the 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 kind of splat moment was kind of this estrangement from one of my daughters. Um. Meaning I be, I got to pay attention to this and what can I do individually? I think individually, I think surrounding myself more with people like you and Jordan and, and, and doing that and, and having difficult conversations with people that I don't align with politically is very important to me now and, ha and learning how to have difficult conversations, um, without kind of just getting exasperated and leap. Cause you know, it's, it's so hard b because that whole, uh, identity politics, um, mindset, or at least the agenda, is so clever and insidious. You know, the circular arguments could almost drive drive you in, insane. And if you don't know how to combat it, um, we're never going to. And to me, it's so critically important that we learn how to have difficult conversations. If not, I mean, it's a lost game. And I just don't know how many of of us there are. I tend to think there's a lot more than not. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I do. That's why I said the silent majority thing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have just checked out. They don't want to deal with the mob on social media. They don't want to share their mm -hmm. political opinions at the office or, you know, we're all working by Zoom now, whatever it is. And the question is, will they vote? 
I would say the other sort of silver lining, if my prediction is right, if that's what we need to do to get the, the reset, well, think about it this way. 2016, you voted for Trump. Is there some, if you voted for Trump in 2016, is there some way you're going to go, well, okay, I can either vote for Trump again, or I'm so suddenly attracted to what the left is offering. I, I just can't. Yeah, I, I don't it's see hard that. To, right. It's hard to imagine that someone voted for Trump. You may not be thrilled with everything he did. You, you may have lost your job because of COVID, et cetera. But the idea that somehow what the left is offering is somehow better seems kind of crazy. Now, do the reverse of that. The reverse of it is you didn't vote for Trump last time. You voted probably for Hillary. But now you've seen what the left has become in these last three years. You see the new insurgency of the socialists. I can see a lot of people saying, you know what? I, I have some aversion to Trump. I didn't vote for him. I didn't really like him. But he's trying to keep the wheels on the thing here. He, he likes America. He likes freedom and capitalism and all that. I can see a lot of people breaking that way. That's not going to show up in the polls. Uh, that's not going to no. show up at, at, at your water cooler conversation. But I think it will show up probably at Election Day. The, the, the one uh, intangible to that, of course, is that it could, it, as it usually does, it'll come down to voter turnout. So if a lot of the Trump people are just depressed and they, they all came out, they were excited to vote for Trump the first time. But now this time they're just like, ah, it's not as exciting. Well, then then there's a different issue. Well, I guess I, I, I do see I don't know if I can take it to that for that conclusion. I, I look at my friend Mike that I alluded to earlier. You know, he's, he voted for. Uh, Obama both times. Uh, he voted for Hillary in this last election, but he's not excited about Biden. You know, I think he's kind of he and I are just kind of going like, "What in the hell are we going to do? This is crazy." You know, everybody seems kind of lost. I don't know if I could take him for example. I don't know if he would take it to the logical conclusion and invite vote for Trump. He probably wouldn't vote or vote for some. You know, now kind of like you, in, I'm in Kansas. Uh, Trump's going to win. It doesn't matter who, what 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 you what you vote. So it's kind of a, you can just vote on your principles at that point And it really doesn't yeah, matter. You know, the, I, I think the important, yeah, look, you should always vote on your principles as best you can. You know, it's tough. Even, even when we have a third party, it's still tough to vote on your principles mm -hmm. because as I said, I voted for Gary Johnson, who was the libertarian candidate and he, he was a pretty terrible libertarian, uh, at least as a presidential candidate, he was pretty good as governor of New Mexico. Um, but you know, it's look, if you don't vote, the system may be screwy, but it's the best thing we got. And yeah, you know, you it's going to be it. messed with. It's mm -hmm. going to be messed with this year because they're trying to do more mail-in ballots. And it's like in the midst of a pandemic and the race stuff and the riots and the protesting, it's like you also want to change how we vote. <laughs> it, it, it's all pretty bananas right now. Yeah. Well, what's next for you? What do you what do you what are you excited about as you look at the rest of the year and look into 2021? What what gets you excited? Well, what I'm most excited about at the moment, as of this taping, is in about eight days, I go off the grid for August. So this is something I've done. This will be my fourth year of doing it. So one full month, I've, I've always done it in August. No phone, no news, no television, no electronics. Uh, a couple times if I hop in my car, you know, there's GPS in the car already. So that's the one screen that I do see. I've got a pretty terrible sense of direction, so I can still get to the supermarket. Um, in years past, we've, we've taken some vacations and done some beach time and that sort of thing. Uh, just relative to what's going on in the world right now, we're just going to hunker down at home and, and have some family visit and some friends and stuff like that. Um, but giving my brain a chance to get off the news, you know, I'm going to miss some major stuff this year because the, the, uh, at the end of August is the Republican National Convention. That's where Trump obviously will be nominated again. And, you know, God, God only knows what else will happen over the course of the month between COVID and the riots and everything else. 
Um, but what I found is when I've done this, it, it really gives my head a chance to just clear out, uh, calm down a little bit. Uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll try to exercise a little more. I, you know, I, I try to exercise enough now, but just exercise, eat right, you know, reconnect with some friends and family, as I said, and, uh, and not be part of the machine all the time. Because when you're not part of the machine all, all the time, then when you come back, I always find that I really do have a fresh perspective on things when I come back. I feel really energized and ready to roll in September. Uh, so that's one thing. And then uh, we'll be making a pretty major announcement about the show on the day that I get back on September 1st. So I'm excited about that. So I've had a bunch of business stuff going on. Uh, probably I will announce uh, a new book coming pretty soon. We're, we're putting the final touches on that. And, uh, you know, and as far as the world, you know, the, the, you know, the Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. People think of it as, as a blessing. Like, may you live in interesting times. May your life be of some cool stuff is happening. It's actually a curse. May you live in interesting times. Because if you live in interesting times, that means there's some stuff going down. <laughs> right. and, and, you know, we definitely live in interesting times. There's no doubt about it. And I think for anyone that's got their head on straight, you know, you have a chance to help fix it. If you see something wrong in the world, you've got a chance to fix it. And, you know, I say this all the time, but in every movie, whatever movie, whatever adventure, sci-fi, superhero movie you love, well, what does is, what is Spider-Man do? What does Luke Skywalker do? What is Neo doing in the Matrix? What does Frodo do? They don't, they don't wait around for someone else to fix the problem. They fix the problem. That's why we love these stories. And every one of us has the power to fix something in their lives. And it doesn't mean you're perfect at it all the time. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it all the time. And we all screw up. We all take two steps forward and three steps back and, you know, all of that stuff. But especially now, and Jordan would talk about this on the tour, you know, because of social media, you have no idea what effect you could have on the world. Mm -hmm. You might have three followers on Twitter and one day come up with a really insightful thought or a funny video or an interesting meme. And you have no idea by the end of the day, Three million people might know who you are. Right. And that goes for literally anyone listening to this. So we have a unique power now to, to change the world. And if you just sit back and you don't get in the game because you think that's how you're going to be safe, well, you're the frog in the slowly boiling pot, and it does not work out well for the frog. Well said, and I can't agree with you more. We talk about that a lot here on the show, that we have way more influence than we give ourselves credit for. And I think a, a part of the intentionality to get that is surround yourself with other people that challenge you and thinking and, and getting off the grid, like you said, being intentional about that, some sort of sort of personal habits that gets away from the traditional social media, mainstream media, TV things, challenge yourself, push yourself out of the comfort zone. It, it, you know, that's the growth zone. They don't coincide. Comfort and growth don't sit in the same plane. And, and the more that you can do that, the better it can be. And I agree with you hundred percent. I think that you may not it's easy to look at it, the big picture, you know, it's kind of like this, the analogy I give a, a big history buff with like that lieutenant that's storming the beach in Normandy sitting in the Higgins boat ready to storm the beach. His mind's thinking about his, his wife and his kid that he's never seen. He's thinking about how he might die. He's thinking about this war isn't going to be over because Hitler's dying. And he's thinking all these things external to that boat. And meanwhile, there's 17 guys in the boat looking at mm -hmm. him and he can influence those 17 guys at that moment if he chooses to do so, despite all the other bullshit that's going on around him. Right. And, uh, and that's yeah, what I just heard you say is that it may seem overwhelming, um, but we can do something and it starts at the individual level, right? Just getting yourself right and checking out for 60, 30 days, 
you know, that's a, that's a, a step that you are doing, right? And hey, I, JP, JP said, clean your room. Clean why your did room. That phrase, why did that phrase work? Well, the whole idea is you've got all these people that are rioting and protesting all over the place. You know, it's like, I bet you if you go to their rooms, their rooms are not clean. Their rooms are a disaster. <laughs> I mean, right. it sounds silly. It's probably right? it true, sound, though. It sounds silly, but it's not trivial. It's not. You know, you go into my room right now. I'm, I'm in my house. We're in my garage. My room's clean. My room's mm-hmm. clean. Because if you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you make your bed and you make sure your clothes aren't all over the floor, it, it adds a little order to your world. And these people are in a state of disorder constantly. And it's like, man, even if you guys, even if I'm wrong about a lot of this and you guys are right about something, whatever it is that you're trying to be right about, let's say you're right about something. Do you think that destroying everything in the name of your rightness (laughs) is what's going to build a better future? Of course it isn't. All you're going to do, you're going to build kangaroo courts. You're going to, you know, we're in the... in the Batman trilogy, what was the last one called? The Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in that phase when Gotham was under lockdown. And what happened? The scarecrows started doing these courts and the people, you know, there was mob justice and they were executing people in the ice. I mean, that's where they will lead us. Yep. And we just have to, we don't have a lot of adults in the room. For yep. all of the of the sort of nice things that I said about why Trump exists, he's not the adult in the room that needs to bring us all together but but we're not we're almost not there yet but i think for anyone listening to this if you can be a little more of the adult in your life whatever mm-hmm. that means whether it's with your family whether it's with your friends or whatever but be a little more of the calming force through the storm maybe some of this will trickle to some other people well said and uh, we're coming up on the on the time you've got another engagement here i want to give you the enough time to get ready for that but tell people how they can get in touch with you learn more about you get your book all of that how can people find more about you i got a good branding guy it's pretty much ruben report anywhere you go rubenreport.com youtube.com slash ruben report instagram ruben report and uh, and you can get the book at don't burn this which i highly recommend i read it in one night not that it's 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 that engaging and and it's that powerful to read. Uh, Dave, you're one of the good ones. What an honor to have you come on the show. Uh, I'd love to have you come back and dive in some more and uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Good luck with everything. And uh, if I make it to Kansas before uh, the apocalypse, we'll get a beer. (laughs) Death for sure. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world. Go to doseofleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.